All right, sit back, relax. It's time for another Laneway Talks. Glenn Mason, thanks for coming along today at uh, Laneway headquarters for uh, an interview about your musical career. Yeah. Um, I'd like to start with asking, um, where are you from originally and how how did you, from a very early age, get into music? Well, first off, I uh, was originally born in Nottingham, UK, so I'm English uh, heritage, and uh, my folks immigrated in 1952 to Australia. Dad was one of the 10 quitters post-war where they had a relocation program for service people, and they could go and basically... Uh, anywhere in the world to live and they it just cost them 10 quid. So dad came out to Australia and uh, we settled originally in Richmond, which is where they had a whole bunch of the kind of tin, round tin sort of owing huts that they used to have. Uh, and then my folks started their long journey of getting employment and all that kind of stuff. Mum worked at the GMH plant out at Dandenong and uh, dad was relocated because he was actually still in the service. So he ended up working at the RAAF barracks in St Kilda Road as a, as a clerk. So that's the story of the, the relocation program, where I came from, so to speak. But my father was uh, a Welshman and sang in the church choir in Pontypridd, where his, where his uh, father worked in the graveyards there. Uh, after, I might add, the years when... Many of the Welsh, as you know, were down the mines. So Dad was down the mines when he was 11 years old, doing his bit down there for the for the effort, so to speak, uh, and trying to stay alive with the family. But um, he was uh, he had a great voice. Well, many many a famous Welsh band. Oh. One of my favourites being Man. Oh, okay. Who was I only listening to the other night? Sure. It uh, goes stands true that uh, some very nice rock bands came out of Wales. Well, rock bands, and then their legacy, of course, is all the vocal harmony stuff in the church choirs and and you know men, you know, men of Harlech and all that kind of historical stuff. So I grew up listening to that and Dad at parties because Mum was a honky tonk piano player as well, and uh, you know from England, and so, you know, I had all these kind of strange uncles and aunties that, of course, become your uncle and auntie when they're just friends of the family. So wherever they relocated to, they'd end up having these social nights. Well, of course, you know, Uncle Harry would be on the pots and pans and Mum would be on the piano and Dad would be singing his heart out, right? So I grew up with that, and that led from the era when, you know, you had the crooners and the ballad singers Etc. from that big band era. And then, of course, it started, you know, uh, rock and roll. At the phrase or the terminology begun out of, the, out of the States with most of the people, I'm sure, all the listeners and everything are, are fairly aware of. Um, but I really didn't get into much of that until the music explosion of the early 60s. I knew that that stuff was on the radio because you'd hear Bill Haley and you'd hear, you know, uh, Presley and people like that and even earlier, but a lot of it didn't really make sense, much sense to me and I wasn't really kind of that captivated by it because I wasn't really listening to it. I More when I was at the beginning at school, intermediate school as it was in New Zealand then, this is after uh, living in Australia, 52. Dad got a job in New Zealand in 58 and we went over there and lived for 11 years. So that's pretty much where the whole musical world for me really started to turn on because that giant worldwide explosion of everybody that you and I could sit here and talk about for hours really kind of kicked in. 
all the changes in America with the folk singers and Bob Dylan and all that stuff coming out, uh, politically diverse and not correct, and, you know, according to most of the Americans. Um, and then you had the English explosion following not soon after, you know, from their kind of blues guys that were following a lot of the American blues stuff like Alexi Korn and, and those kind of dudes. So all of that started to build their shift up. In England, uh, you know, you had John May on the Blues Breakers and all that kind of stuff. You know. And where did you, what was your first real band? And what I mean by that, where you thought, oh, I could actually, we, we could be paid to play. What was your first? Oh, not too much later. I was like at, um, pretty much at high school when that sort of moment started to, or that period started to turn around. One of my friends at school was a really excellent natural guitar player. He was already on the stage when he was 11 years old. Uh, and he showed me some chords and stuff because all of the music was starting to dig in. The Beatles were on the radio, guys and gals, and, you know, everybody wanted to be in a band. Oh, let's do this, you know, from the shadows on, I might add. You know, so all of that was kicking up in New Zealand just like it was right around the world. I think at the, the time zone was fairly similar right around the did, did you know Mike right around that time? Because he was in New Zealand. I, again, it's not too much later. Like, so I came out of the high school thing. Uh, we'd played at a local, you know, a few local gigs, a few local halls. And in those days, it was just like Australia. Somebody would go and hire the local ch church hall. Oh, we're going to make a few bucks out of this. Put on a couple of the footy players of security, charging me, you know, five, $5 or probably $2 or you know, what was it in those days? Probably 20 cents. Yeah, 20 cents or two, you know, whatever it would, would be, 15 shillings, you know, and uh, and get the crew along. So you'd have guys, you know, in, in the full-suited bands, all fitted out with red fenders and stuff, imitating Hank Marvin tunes and all that kind of stuff. And then it moved on to the bands playing Beatles songs because the explosion had happened, and then it went from them doing Stone songs and Pretty Things, and then, you know. So this is where you cut your teeth and then... Correct. We get to... Um, well, I, I left high school and went to art school, Wellington Polytechnic. And at that point, and as it later happened, I was bunking classes to try and go and play because they weren't teaching me properly at the Polytechnic. They were spending a lot of time with those kids who basically uh, would uh, be really good and not enough with people like myself who really weren't that good or we were on the bottom of the A class, for example. So anyway, eventually I told my folks, look, don't worry about this. I'm not going anymore. Don't bother about funding it. Um, I'm going to go and get a job, which I did. And so pretty much around about that time, I was in this band called The Jigsaw and nothing to do with Johnny Chester, I might add, and uh, over there. And we started, we were playing around locally around Wellington in the North Island, the capital. And then as were 90 zillion other bands and artists playing around the time. So, I, you know, we were playing for a few bucks then, but I, I had no, well, what would you say, I had no forward desire that that was going to be my life and I was going to play for money and this is all I was ever going to do. It just didn't occur to me at the time. And, and then uh, as I left art school and I was working straight gigs, of course, I started playing more gigs. And then one day... Some guys there came to ask me to play. The jigsaw was, you know, doing its thing. And, and they said, oh, well, look, we're going out on the road and that, you know, do you want to come and sort of play guitar in the band? And it was an outfit called The Bitter End. And that was my first pro gig being actually out on the road, period, forever. So uh, that's kind of where that kicked. Okay. And then um, 
You moved to, I, I think, the, the Rebels? Uh, well, basically the Buterand, and then that went through sort of um, some changes. The Jigsaw kind of reformed, so to speak, at a later date, and uh, we were shifted up to Auckland, and we were playing a lot of the traps around there, and the band was pretty damn fine, I might add, at that particular point. Again, as were a lot of the New Zealand sort of musicians. So the, the whole thing there was coming of age. So anyway, and there was a lot more camaraderie, I might add, uh, amongst it. It wasn't sort of like a serious sort of competitive yeah. aspect to the music industry until it became an industry. So over there, everyone just used to go to parties and rock on. And the guys from the Rebels were friends friends of ours. Anyway, they came down and one of the geese were playing one day. This was heading towards uh, about 68, going into 69. And they said, oh, look, you know, unfortunately, Larry's, um, you know, being, shall we say, contained and he can't sing for the band. Do you want to sing for the band? And I said, well, look, I'm in a pretty good band now. Like, you know. What? Were you singing in Jigsaw or were yeah, you, you were singing in guitar? No, I was just singing in Jigsaw, that, that particular version. Yeah. Originally, I was playing guitar, but the second Jigsaw version... I, was, I just say. So if it's 68, 69 that you partake in some gigs with the Rebels mm -hmm. and... Well, I joined a recording. Right, because Larry uh, yep. quietly, uh, just as I said, got detained. So I, um, I said, well, what's in it? What are you doing? And they said, well, we're doing an album. Uh, we're not just interested in singing. We want you to, you know, we're interested in, do you write any songs? And I said, well, I haven't really made a giant effort in it, but I'll give it a crack, you know. And that's with some fledgling sort of moments of me writing some songs. Anyway, so I joined the band. We did a tour. We had a number one single from that album called My Son John, which was a British pop track, and uh, and then came to Australia. Now, they'd already been here about four to five times with Larry up front singing as Larry's Rebels, and they were quite big in Australia, and they were huge in New Zealand. They were like a number one act in New Zealand, very popular. And uh, anyway, so um, I went, I'm in. So we did a, a that, that whole process took about uh, over nine months, just about, I think, the album, the tour, and then we came to Australia. Okay. And and, and you came to Australia as, as the Rebels and Correct. obviously did some shows, but yeah. not too many. No, no, look, we just went straight into it. Like, you know, what had been happening for years was a trade-off, bouncing talent between New Zealand and Australia. Bands from Australia would go there and they would link up with the agents there and bands from New Zealand would come by and link up with the agents used to talk to each other. So Ray Columbus and the Invaders were coming over, Al Morrison, Quartet, blah, 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 Max Moon and the Meteors. Leo De Castro. Yeah, yeah. Well, Leo came in what I call the first exodus of talent from New Zealand around about 67, I think, somewhere around there. And that whole first bunch included, like, you know, Dinah Lee, Max Merritt, um, Leo... Uh, and a bunch of other sort of acts mm. came over and had been coming over, I might add, um, some of them. Uh, so how long did the Rebels last in uh, Australia? Just over, just over a year. Yeah. Yeah, we arrived in March of 69, and I think just by almost the start of the following year it was over. Uh, not, not because we weren't working. Everybody was working. We used to do five or six gigs a week, no problems, as did everybody. Uh, it was a very – we walked into an incredibly healthy era. Right? Australia was quite massive. And when I got here then, I think uh, my next-door neighbour at the moment, Rob Greaves, um, uh, writes editorials about music and bits and pieces for Two Act Times. And he wrote a, a massive uh, kind of historical content article about music in Australia around that period. And there was more than, like, 50 gigs plus in Melbourne at the time. 
that was just rock and roll because never mind anything else. So it's like huge. And I mean, we were working heaps. Anyway, that busted up and I joined uh, Chain. That was in 69, Chain? Uh, later 69 going into the, the start of the So straight into recording with Chain? Pretty much, yeah, yeah, because we did a, the first live album then and a couple of singles off it. Um, bits and pieces. Uh, and then uh, the guys decided that they wanted to go and try and crack it up in Sydney. Who, who are you referring to? Uh, well, in the band then was Phil Manning, Warren Morgan, Barry Harvey and Barry Sullivan. Some big names there, Clint. Well, they, they were the uh, pretty much the originals. And what had, uh, what had happened was is that they had Wendy Saddington singing with them uh, up in Sydney. And part of my history becomes a little bit disjointed there, but I jammed with them at the first outdoor festival ever in Sydney at Arumba, right? And uh, we just sort of went our own ways with stuff. I hung about Sydney for a while. I don't know why I was there, but I hung about. And then I came back to Melbourne. And when Wendy left up there... Those four guys came down to Melbourne and that's when I joined. They asked me to join the band. I mean, you must have been pretty stoked. You've been, okay, with the Rebels, who, as you said, had number one in, the U in uh, New Zealand and had a lot of gigs here. Mm -hmm. And you join a year later. But that, I, I think that's what I was trying to say to you before. There was a lot of more um, interaction between members of bands in those days. You were all mates. But what I'm trying to get at is how you felt and how your career was going because you were moving on from one well-known act to another well-known act. Yeah, moderately so. And, and I had played the blues a lot in, in New Zealand before I joined the Rebels, right? Like Jigsaw, we used to do all of the stuff that was kind of blues-orientated around that period of time I was telling you. So anywhere from John Mayle to Hendrix to... You know, the stuff that was coming out of the UK and then the, basically the Chicago blues stuff that we were into it because basically blues prior to that sort of urban world wasn't electric. It was mainly the, or mm -hmm. the stuff that you know, mm -hmm. muddy waters and so forth. It later became electric and moved into those areas where you had, you know, junior wells mm -hmm. and all went. And so up there, yeah. we played quite a bit of that stuff over there. It was kind of very big in New Zealand. Well, how did you enjoy the chain, chain, chain experience? Uh, look, you know what? I mean, I think um, I mean, I've loved every outfit that I've ever been involved in because I've learned something from everybody in, in all of those bands and all that musical as the years have gone by. And I grant myself being very fortunate to be able to sustain work. Now, in between some of the bands, I just took on regular day jobs, you know, like chipping concrete off things with jackhammers and crap just to stay alive. But the, that sort of period never seemed to end, uh, never seemed to last too long. And before you know it, some other band would be saying, oh, well, you know, we're going to do this, you know, do you want to come and play? Or whatever. And then in a couple of instances, um, I sort of semi-formed my own bands, right? Well, we'll, Which were like home, you know, and much, much later. We'll, we'll move to them. So yeah. we've got, so we got Chain, yeah. and so you would Chain for about anyway, a year, they, year and a half? Uh, yeah, they, they went to, they wanted to go to try and, play in Sydney and work. Well, uh, they had been in touch with an agent up there who said, well, look, you know, you do this and make a move to come up and I'll sort of look like I'll look after it. Well, we went through to Newcastle direct first because we were able to get a residency at a club there at the bus stop, right? And so we went up and we stayed there for a month and um, the owner of the, the, the gig uh, used to rent out a house to every band that came through to play there. So we stayed up there and played there and, and tried to write 
lot more material and then build the band. Well, of course, that might have been fine, but then eventually when we ended up in Sydney, um, we couldn't get enough work and the agent sort of really wasn't working with us that well from my memory and it just didn't work. So I, the band split up, right? And the guys went west and I went overseas basically for a year and a half uh, or more, actual fact. Yeah, uh, what went, what did you actually do overseas? Just uh, hang out or play? No, no, I played. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I played. I, I just arrived there. Um, I had nothing to hold me in Australia, so no. no. So where, where, where would you play or did you get a band together over there? No, no. Well, what, what happened around that time, I'll try to keep it as brief as possible, but so I went over there. Shane, by the way, just to finish that little episode, they went on to be bigger than ever. That's when Matt Taylor joined and they had Towards the Blues and Black and Blue and the whole thing and they became juggernauts of the Australian sort of music industry in terms of legendary blues players and, and band, uh, and the band. And that was probably, you know, really their most popular and biggest period in, in Australian music history, I'd say, for, for Jane. Anyway, I, I was overseas during that whole time. So when I arrived there, like most overseas people do when they go, you know, you're an expat Aussie just when you step off the plane. So... I went, oh, okay, what am I going to do now? So out of all of the magazines, Melody, Melody Maker and NME and all this sort of stuff, I, I just went to the ads at the back. I went, guitarist wanted, or lead, you know, singer or whatever. I went to try out with a few British bands. Uh, my memory of it was that in playing and trying to play with a few of these bands, Australian talent was about 80% higher in terms of its capability and musicianship. Only in the top upper crust of the English music, the ones that were like cream and went to the top, were the brilliant bunch down here was this mire of, you know, how many how many million people who were just not that good. Mm. There might have been one guy or gal that was... Okay. And is that, is that what led you to come back to Australia? Uh, no, no. Well, um, uh, what what actually happened was that um, Doug Parkinson was over there because uh, a lot of bands went to England one way or another. They either won the Hoadley's Battle of the Bands, or blah, 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 or some just went, we've got to get over into another market because we're dying. Because you know? Doug had a band, there was a band. Fanny Adams. Fanny Adams, which are so English, yeah. uh, it's not funny. Well, we, when I got there, uh, um, I had Doug's number, and we got to know them in Australia. I'd got to know them just in division. Not very well, but, you know, we used to go and watch them play all the time with Spectrum and blah, blah, blah. Everybody was kind of like friends. So anyway, he said, well, look, you know, we're, we're going over. This is like when I was in chain. He said, we're going over. I'm going to try and get this thing going. So anyway, whatever happens, um, you know, if you're over, just give us a buzz. So I gave him a call, went around, had a few cups of tea and, and points west, and then I said, well, look, man, I'm really not having any luck getting work. And he said, okay, well, why uh, these friends of ours, uh, the guitar players just left, which was Mick Lieber, all right, from, uh, it might have been Python Lee Jackson or one of those bands, I can't remember which, but anyway, he'd left to join Ashton Gardner and Dyke, Resurrection Shuffle, remember that? Oh, fun. So he said, why don't you go around and try out with these guys? Away I go. Well, the leader of the band is a guy called Frankie Boy Reed, who was a, a, a Selenese rock and roll singer doing Eddie Cochran songs and stuff like that. Very handsome looking dude, very sort of Elvis-like in his appearance. 
and a lovely bloke who was a mechanic during the day. On drums was David Montgomery from Python Lee Jackson, and the bass player was Tony Cahill from the Easy Beats playing bass, who, I might add, was an exceptional bass player, like incredible bass player. So, have a couple of rehearsals and away we went. Well, Frankie's moon was starting to descend, right, because... He'd been really big over there with a mob called Frankie Boy Reed and the Casuals that played all the working men's clubs in England. He added like a six-piece horn section and the whole thing going on. Well, of course, as time went by, you know, like a lot of musicians, you can't make a lot of dough. So, of course, this starts to drop away. Uh, I guess I'd better go back to my old trade. So, I, you know, I ended up bloody working at um, Girls Court, you know, the, the big show area where they have car shows and everything, lugging sacks of peas around in the catering department trying to make a few bucks on top of the depleting gigs. So anyway, it was coming to a, a you know, a sort of de defined end. And um, there was a lot of trouble over there, if you remember, around about that 70, 71 period. Enoch Powell was in, you know, a member of parliament advocating, you know, stop the illegal immigrants and blah, blah, blah. The West End, people were going down there chucking balls through windows and bloody blowing up families and all sorts of stuff. I went, you know what? I don't really like the feel of this man. I think I'm hightailing it. And I met a gal who later became my wife, uh, just playing at a couple of pubs over there at Sowville Pub. And she was at an English no, on Australian. Yeah. All that way, and I ended up with an Australian. Do you know what? Yeah. Anyway, so um, she said, well, me and my girlfriend, we're just going to you know, basically hitchhiked back to Australia. And I went, uh, well, can I join you? Because we were just friends at that point. So away we come. So all the way back to Australia, ending up in Darwin. Now, what, what, what are we talking about? Is 71? Uh, heading in, uh, no, heading sort of late 70. Late 70. Late 70. So what yes. happens throughout 70, uh, late 70, what happens throughout 71? Okay, so I'm back in Australia, mm. right? And the guys from, uh, I was working up there just for the local council in Darwin, and the guys in chain found out that I was back in the country. So it was like that, you know, the, the, the classic um, uh, Blues Brothers thing, let's get the band back together. Yeah. Right? Well, we did, and I, I came back to Melbourne. So that, that version of chain that I was in, that reformed. Matt had gone, and that band had broke up. I think he'd gone to the commune, hadn't he? Whatever he'd gone, yeah. yeah. I don't really know a lot about Matt's history, to yeah. the truth, other than the fact that he's a super entertaining guy and an old Lovely band. Oh, but anyway, so I, I rejoined the band, another album, another couple of you know, songs off the type of thing, but it was, you know, probably somebody like yourself could have seen it from the outside. It was doomed to failure, right? Because all the guys have really gone different directions musically. Mm. LG was into like fairly serious heavy jazz. Mm. BG, uh, you know, I think was I think correctly, um, you know, was struggling in, in sort of the areas, you know, personally and uh, and other other things. Um, Phil was still and and Peak were still awesome players, the awesome players they were, but the it was just too fragmented, so it was never going to stay together. So that folded, and just about then, I was living with Bill Putt from a, from an aerial, right? Uh -huh. Or Spectrum as it was then. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, the first aerial had already folded. First aerial or Spectrum? No, the first aerial. Back in 72? Yeah, about sort of around there somewhere, because Michael had already gone over to England, as you know, with yeah. the first aerial with Harvey James and John Lee. I thought that was 75, 76. Uh, well, it might have been, but um, 
Like, I think we're back here now. If we take it back to seven, honestly, I, I really can't. The chronological yeah. aspects of yeah. some of the things. So, because I thought what happened, you got uh, chain back together, and then it was home next. Then Mobley. Yeah, you moved into home, and there was home at last, and then the second home album. How did how did home come together? And home to me represents Australia's Eagles. It was an East Coast American sound. Well, it's mainly country rock. At, which is which is Eagles, which yeah, well, is, you know what they do. Yeah, my, my influences at that point were 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 um, I was swinging the band, mm. like I that band, mm. you know, I was sort of yep. into that kind yeah. of world. Well, I, okay. I, I had been into a lot of the harmony things. I loved all the West well, Coast. Well, how did Home come about, and well, how did you get a record deal the, with Atlantic? These these period of these periods of time here all. Uh, are confusing for me. No. I can't remember the actual uh, uh. logistics of just how all of that happened. Uh. If home was in the middle there, I still can't remember, therefore, how I would have been up in Sydney oh, because yeah. I left Chain. Mm. Now, uh, I went over to England, mm. came back. The second Chain reformed. Yeah. And I can't remember, maybe, just maybe. But let, let's just get, let's just, just get. Maybe it might have been the second chain yeah. that I'm talking about that went to Sydney. Mm. Right? But, and that broke up because that would have allowed me to, the ability to be involved in um, home, right? So that period of time went on. And then I but, but how did we? But how did we form? How did you form home? It was just a bunch of guys that got together, or did you know each other? There's Gunther Gorman, was it? Trevor Wilson yeah. uh, was a friend of mine from the Lardy Dars. Oh, okay. Right. So he was the original home bass player. Ah, okay. So out of that, I can't exactly how we know, but remember how we ended up with Gunther oh. and or Loppie. Loppie was in a fairly, um, a known drummer in a fairly rock Orientated Sydney based band. And and and, and you know, I mean and like that, that band just got together and, yeah. we, we, we and you got a record deal fairly quickly. Well yeah, because Trevor was a, a premium he had a lot of songs. Mm -hmm. And I think between that and, and whatever. But we were playing around quite a lot. Right. You know. Like most bands uh, who were offered deals, mm. usually they came much later after the band's formation. It wasn't to do with the band mm. as it started mm. and a record company went, oh, we're going to, you know, you guys are amazing. It was like they would have heard about you live mm -hmm. generally. And, you know, in those days, the A&R departments were always going out looking for bands and mm. all the rest of the stuff. So someone probably saw it because we used to play quite a lot in Sydney and went, oh, well, you know, these guys do this and they do a lot of their own songs, yeah. blah, blah, blah. Um, so that, that's probably where Well, let, let's jump over now to Aerial. Mm. And um, the first Aerial album to come out, Mm -hmm. And, you know, we know that they had... Uh, that was the first band, though, with Timmy Gaze. Exactly. Uh, John Mills, I think his name was. Yeah. Nigel, Bill and Mike. Exactly. And Anna had quite good um, uh, oh. success in the UK uh, from a, some radio airplay or whatever. Not that it, it, it did anything huge on the charts, but it did get airplay. He recognised them. And then... You know, we know a few issues happened. Well, the there. band folded. Yeah. And then uh, Michael had the, the new band, so to speak, 
right? So he had John Lee and Harvey James, yeah. and he'd basically written a new uh, themed piece of music called Jell About Mutant, right? And we went over to England with that particular band yeah. as part of an EMI deal from my, my record. Yes. Uh, they didn't like it much. No. And they said, well, we want songs like this, these, mm. these ones here. Heads, Rock and Roll, Scars, mm. right? I think. Now, that's where you come in. No, no. They, they'd gone there as a four piece. Right. Only when they returned did I join the band. And you're on the cover. Are you on the cover of Rock and Roll Scars? No. no. Okay. That was just Harvey. Right. Uh, John Lee. Right, okay. And then, uh, then they came back and were due to go back again yes. as the second half of the deal. Yes. Right? So away we trumped off back over to the UK and uh, we, I think uh, we had an agency. Our manager was Phil Jacobson in Australia. Phil Phil, a very famous person yeah. in the industry. And he uh, came over with us and we had an agency called the March Agency that looked after us and we were working a bit, which was amazing considering the fact that a lot of English bands weren't. So we, you know, we worked Glasgow and Southall and you know, we weren't we're bad. We, from my memory, we at least had a gig a week. Mm. It wasn't that bad. Um, and we were just about to embark on a, on a German uh, army base tour when EMI decided in their magnanimity to, to, to go through a budget reshuffle and they dropped about 15 bands. Well, our album hadn't even come out over there yet and... Which album are you referring to? Uh, well, at least probably... Uh, Jellybad Mute? No, I don't know. That might have been like Good Dog Fiona. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, right. One of those. Mm -hmm. And anyway, so they didn't even, you know, didn't even get there, mm. right? So Philip, uh, you know, tried to uh, help us out and, and keep us uh, employed there, but it, it's just impossible. So we came home and it was only about... Now, that had to be the late 70s, correct? That's right. Yeah, no, no, uh, sort of 73. Uh, hang on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 75, 76, because I was only in the band for about two and a half years. Right, oh, okay. Because Softly C. Mason was 78. Right, that was That's after Ariel. Correct. Right, okay. Yeah, so, but, it, but in between, I had my own band. Yeah. Yeah. So I had the loose string band in the line with uh, Vicky Doland and uh, Michael Higgerty on bass, Rick Petrarch. Which we have some songs uh, out yeah. online right. of that. that uh, cause, that, of that band. Yeah, because it was no official album, but yeah. we have got tracks. So we came back. Ariel came back from England that second time. It was only about mm, maybe six months or so later at Harvey left to join Schubert. Yeah. So John Lee had left early. Yeah. Well, he, he, he got sacked over there, so he came back with, with Nigel Macaro. Did he then go back to the dingoes? Well, I don't know. I, I can't remember what, yeah. what happened with all the yeah. different sort of personnel, so to speak. But the, uh, well, except for, you know, Harvey went to shoes, you know. Um, Nigel was with us uh, and then he'd gone and we had Tony Slavich on keyboards, uh, myself, Michael and Bill and um, Ian McLennan on kit. So that was the last aerial that I worked with. Mm. In actual fact, it was the last aerial. Mm. We finished our performance with that double album out at yeah. Ellis Books Hall. Yeah. That was that. So where, where did you go to? Uh, well, pretty much like, <clears throat> you know, I was like, well, gee, what am I going to do now? You know, same old story. You know. um, so I, I periodically, I think that's when the loose string band came into it around about then. And I did that for a while. That lasted, uh, I think we just did some demo songs and stuff. We never released anything and the thing fell apart. And round about that time, uh, was when Chris Stockley and Sam had come back from Canada with Greg Quill. 
Uh-huh. And they finished their last gig at the station hotel. X Country Radio. Yeah. Right. We got to do it. Yes. And like, well, neither of us can really sing. Who do we get? You know, <laughs> so with that fabulous scene of me walking out of some pawn shop. <laughs> there was no acting academy awards then. <laughs> so, and, and, you know, a lot of your, your followers on Laneway can sort of see the, the hilarity of that yeah. on YouTube. So around about then, 78, was when Stockley City started and away we went. And really, we fell into an amazing void for, uh, in within that first 16-month period. Richard Clapton was off the road. Stars had come off the road for a while. And so we had this blend of country rock-ish things that we were a lot more countrified when we first started. Sam was playing lap steel and Chris played a lot of mantle and we did some sort of crazy stuff. But then as time went by, the, the, it became a lot more edged towards the rock side. And both, uh, all of our national facts sort of... Had you known Chris Stockley and Sam C? Yeah. Quite... A little bit with Sam. I'd know Chris a lot. Because right, Sam being Flying Circus and Chris being Dingo. Yeah. yeah. So... Um, but Sam had gone, right? He'd, he'd been gone uh, with Flying Circus and, and his time in Canada, for, I don't know, maybe let's just say five years or something. Yeah. Well, he'd been gone a long time. But I knew Chris from the deep <coughs> sake. And like all those sort of bands, Chain, them, every touring band from Sydney, like basically played at the station and, you know, the dingoes were, were sort of, that was kind of like the home away from yeah, those guys. Yeah. But um, you got to know those guys and so... That's where the connection came mm. with those fellas. Now, Tour de Force came after that. Uh, must have. Um, I think it. I think yeah, it was. Think tour, that's right. Tour de Force. Uh, yeah. Well, um, what happened out of that was is that when Stockley C busted up, the um, and what we're getting out of yeah, it. Yeah, I think I was floating around for a while, but Sam kept Stockley C going for a while. You know, at least maybe for another year with about two to three different singers that he tried out and a lot more of his songs uh, to keep that sort of world going. But eventually, you know, it, it you know, died. Um, the record company backed out, uh, certainly from even when, when I was still in it. And but you don't, obviously so then Joe, I think one of the last bass players from that was Joe Imbrol, right? Because Jeff had moved on, Jeff Rosenberg, and... Joe Imbrol and Dave Stewart and I got together with Two of the Force. That was that band. And oh. on we went. And same deal, you know, we worked hard, um, did a lot of gigs, and in those days a lot of the support acts did all the lugging for the main acts. Oh. You know, so I think we were one of the fittest support acts. Yeah, we've all done down. that before, there's no doubt. Oh. You know, you would go lugging gear around and then, you know, out of your fee you'd have to pay the sound guy from the main act because they were going to just set the desk up for you to do your set. Then you waited for the main act to finish and then they packed up and then you helped them blank out. So, you know, your day could have started at about four o'clock and finished at about one or two in the morning. So, But, you know, look, it's what was going on. The the amount of gigs in that period that we've spoken about must be phenomenal. I was wrong. Uh, Absolutely phenomenal. And, look, you know, getting into the 80s, is that when... Is it, when did you actually move to Fender to, to work for Fender? Uh, well, I shifted back up to Sydney in 84, right? Uh, no, no, nothing much to hold me in Melbourne at that particular point because the Stockley C was over. Anything else that I was considering, uh, nothing much had come up. And I went, well, oh, nothing's holding me here. And Harvey had, uh, had basically was out of Sherbert at that particular point. The whole thing sort of was over. And he was working with Tony Mitchell from Sherbert and John Lee on drums 
and he had a, this band called The Hertzman. And of course, we, we'd remain friends. So like everybody in all these outfits, we were all mates still. There was none of this other bizzo we were just talking about before. We were just friends. So Harvey w w was up there for... Um, I mean, that must have been a good band. That that was a... Well, we, we had fun, but it was just a little four-piece. And we, yeah. You know, we had a few gigs and stuff like that. Yeah. And it was great fun to play. Uh, and again, I just was able to move somewhere and start to play straight away. Mm. But he'd just come off uh, a second tour with Richard Clapton. Yeah. Harvey. Yeah. So I'm up there. I'd shifted up. Yeah, we were playing in this band, and about I don't know, three months later or something like that, he goes, "Oh, I'm going out on tour with Richard Clapton again, and John Lee's coming with me." So Tony and I looked at each other and said, "Well, what the hell are we supposed to be doing for like six to eight weeks or whatever the freaking thing was?" So, and I just said to Tony, "Mate, I'm sorry, man. This this can't work." Because I had rent to pay yeah. and stuff, and I said, like, you know, it's just just impossible. And I was living over at Harbour, sharing a unit with this gal, so I just went, well, look, I can't do that. So I just went out and started doing solo gigs on my own around Manly and Manly Corso and stuff. Um, and around about that time... Are we talking about this time? Tell me something. I, I was just saying, around about that time... Um, a few of my mates, uh, Jeff Rosenberg was waiting around up there and Tony Slavich, yeah. you know, from Ariel and stuff, he'd gone back up yeah. at close to home. And uh, we got this thing together called Baby Loves to Charge Out, which was a solo covers band. Which we have an album out. Yeah, correct. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So um, that sort of happened there. We all remained friends. Uh, and then in that band, I lost my voice again for the second time in my career. Mm. By trying to sound like a you know mm. a fabulous soul singer, and I wasn't one uh, in real. Mm. You stretch yourself too far. Yeah, and so I thought, you know what, this uh, this must be a bit of a signal. I think so. I opted out, mm. and I just uh, formed my own a partnership in landscaping mm. in Sydney for mm. two years, which came and went inside two years because the second year was the highest rainfall in Sydney for 42 years and huge multi-million dollar concrete companies stuff went under the girdle and lost thousands of jobs and you know it rained for about seven months pretty much all the time and we couldn't do work obviously you couldn't you know you couldn't do footings and you know, it, was, it was all over and I had a mortgage by this stage huh. and I went oh man you know you couldn't be right Okay, so I just went to my partner and said, here's my tools. If you want to buy these, I'm out. And um, had no idea what I was going to do. Zero. And Harvey was working at Fender already as a rep. Yeah. And he just said, oh, there's a gig in the warehouse going, mate, do you want it? And I went, I'm in. Yeah. Meanwhile, I owed the tax department you know, about three or 4000 bucks or something. Which would have so been a lot of money back then, yeah. Stayed at Fender and pretty much was there for 21 years. Wow. To 2010. Well, when did you, so that, that that being your day gig, when did you write It's Only Love? Uh, I have no idea. It, was that a, something that was around in your pocket for a lot of time? Not too long before, it must have been in the Ariel days, uh, because Ariel was one of the first bands to play at um, Daydream Island. Oh, yes, yeah. Sundays, yeah. we went to some Ansett hangout. Yeah, Ham Hamilton Island. No, no, uh, no, Daydream. Daydream, I know, and I know Daydream. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and we were one of the first rock bands to play there, and they, they gave us a junket, yeah. right, uh, over about five days, and we only played one day. Yeah. Right, so everyone just went. Absolutely ballistic. Yeah. On the island, they had you know a little drink bar, of course, you know, and they, yeah. in the resort, and we were there. They're getting you know absolutely tailored one night. Yeah. I think so. That's Michael, yeah. uh, the, somebody said, "Well, you know, why don't you get up and, and sing a song or something?" Because I, I I just used to dabble around on acoustic myself. Yeah. 
right? And I must have written the song then because I actually sang it on that night in the in the bar. And then Michael said, well, why don't we record that song? And I went, oh, I mean, you know, and it's been, I think I told you when I first met you, because you already had Michael on board in your, mm. your stable of artists. Mm. And uh, and I said to Michael, oh, I don't know, mate, it doesn't really fit in with, with Errol songs, you know, because he, he and I had written a sort of co-wrote a couple together almost. And, uh, and I said, now I joined your band to play your songs. I, I am not playing my song. Mm. Yeah, you because know, they were still sort of country rockish, yes. so to speak, or pop orientated. I said, oh, I, don't, I don't really want to play it. Anyway, he said, no, no, and of course, you know, I think it was quite successful as a turntable hit for area. Um, so it's on the Good Night Fiona album. Mm, yeah. So unfortunately, I think Michael, uh, just to diverge a little bit, but I think he had um, a difficult, uh, how do you go for time, mate? I think he had a, um, a difficult time uh, for a while and uh, radio wasn't going to give him a crack. As you know, so um, I think he I think he saw it, you know, maybe as a twofold plan, because if I wrote a song and we put it out as Ariel, then Ariel wouldn't be the the, the just recognised as such. It was this sort of new band. So um, anyway, look at strangely enough, it sort of seemed to work. Well, it's, the so, it's, it's the song that's weathered the test of time. Yeah. It sounds as good today as it obviously did yeah, the day you I wrote think, it. I think it's just, um, what can I say? Uh, and, it, and it's a great acoustic song. Yeah. It doesn't need to be electrified. Yeah. It, um, well, look, I think a lot, like, honestly, if you really went back to some of the greatest songs ever, that that's probably how they were originally formulated. Yeah. You look at Paul McCartney and the Blackbird, right? He could just play that song. He could play that song on his own. No, no, no accompaniment. If you get my drift, oh. and it would be just as good as it was on the album. Well, you, you've which said is pretty much how it is on the album, if you know what I mean. Yeah. But you look at those sort of songs, songs by the Eagles. They would have just been written on a couple of acoustic guitars, and you go, wow. Well, you've said to me before that you're not um, you're not a prolific writer. And then, and then I look at I look at the um, I look at the collection of songs mm. by Glenn Mason, mm. and I beg to differ mm. because I think we're probably up to ten albums or so. Yeah, I think I think some of them were, were the trial periods so that you've got on album, as you well know, because I I think I told you um, when you'd made your albums up and you've got them on on Laneway there. And and, uh, and you can get check it out on Spotify. It was just like, and, and I was around at a friend's place, and they just put some wireless speakers in their roof. And my phone couldn't uh, operate Spotify because it didn't have the operating no, system on. Yeah. I, so I borrowed his, and I said, "Like, would you mind if I just because uh, Vincent, this friend of mine, he's just got this new company out, and he's got some stuff of mine." So I went on, <laughs> and some of that early stuff from. That I gave you those bloody two-inch, you know, quarter-inch bloody tapes and everything yeah. that you 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 edited and, and threw up there, and, and I went, who's singing that song? Stop mine. Who the hell's that? And I, I couldn't even recognise myself. That so that's how stupid it got, you know. Yeah. And I, and I listened to about four or five tracks. I'm going, I can't ever remember a writing it, even if I did, 
or singing it. Yeah, there, there's some great tracks uh, here. But look, I, I think that's the same for a lot of people who write. It, but for me, a lot of it was a strange but unfortunate exercise because I was in some band and, you know, I just used to sort of sit there and, and doodle and dabble away. Yeah. Sometimes people said, well, I like that song. You know, maybe we should, like Michael, you know, let's just do that. Um, and other times, like I'm sure just as many writers, there's a lot of songs that people will never hear if you, if you get my drill. Mm. It's like, you know, I think I named, you know, a whole bunch of prolific, fabulous songwriters, Neil Finn being one, mm. right? Well, he's probably got as many songs that he's recorded sitting in file mm. at his home that people will never hear, right? That, that you and I would sit there and go, man, you know, why don't you release that, you know? But they're not. And I don't know whether he's, you know, given a lot to other people, but that's the circumstance. So I, I actually never really thought of myself as a serious writer. Neither did I ever follow it as a discipline, right? The, the really good writers, it's a discipline, right? You'll find a lot of them getting up at like nine and 10 o'clock and they sign off at about five and they're at it all day. And if you go to that history of the Eagles, and they mentioned about Jackson Brown because he was a friend of theirs when they first started to try and do stuff. And uh, Glenn Frey, I think it was, lived downstairs from him. And he said, every day I could wake up to go and get a cup of coffee and Jackson would be upstairs and he'd be writing all day, right? So to me, that's what sort of a songwriter is. Like someone who's really applied and has this ability to, mm. to throw shit together. Brian Cadd, who I work with, mm. um, he's another one of those kind of dudes. Mm. He just writes stuff. Mm -hmm. Comes out of his brain, you know. But you know, I think when we have a look at your yeah. your catalogue, it's prolific. And um, oh, look, I th I think there's some good. Don't get me wrong, I think there's some good songs in there. And other people have uh, forwarded them to other people on my behalf, or, or, or they they thought they were good, so they've shoved them out there in sort of no man's land, oh. hoping that they might be picked up. Oh. I mean, Chris Stockley uh, knew a member of um, Bonnie Raitt's Road Crew, I think it was and shipped them over my song uh, off the first Pardoners CD, um, uh, I'd Rather Be Tired With You, mm. at, which I think stands up as a song. Mm. I think the, the calibre of, of, of songs and the rich history of bands that you've played with and as an individual uh, is testament to what kind of musician you are. Anyway, we'd like to thank you for coming and talking to us today, Glenn, and we look forward to the new album when it comes from Bert Mason. Thanks very much. No worries, mate. Thank you. Well, there you have it, another Laneway Talks. If you enjoyed that, just search Laneway Talks for more great conversations. G'day, folks. Mark Allen here and... The Ox, David Schwartz. Uh, and we've started a brand new podcast called... A Couple of Blokes, A Couple of Beers, and we're just chewing the fat. Couple of Blokes, Couple of Beers with Ox and Marco. I'm thinking about whitening my teeth just so when I smile... There's a new episode every Wednesday. Have you got a weight issue? Of course I do. It's <laughs> <laughs> a stupid loaded question. A Couple of Blokes, Couple of Beers with David Schwartz and Mark Allen. I'm eating the kids' Maltese. You're eating their of... Christmas present. I am a piece of garbage. <laughs> Listen wherever you get your podcasts.